Now, we're going to be reviewing the morning newspapers in just a moment, but first I'll give you some of the headlines and front page stories. And we'll start with the Sunday Times, which, as with most most papers this morning, leads with that tragedy in Munich, Massacre in Munich, the teenage loner who killed nine is the headline, goes into the story in some detail. Uh, an 18-year-old gunman who went on a rampage in Munich killing nine people was a mentally ill loner who idolised Anders Breivik, the far-right Norwegian mass killer. It emerged last night. That story starts. Also, uh, Varadkar criticised for solo run on welfare. This is where Leo Varadkar, I think during the week in the Salubrious McGill Summer School, uh, announced that he was going to index link social welfare payments. It seems he did not consult far and wide within the cabinet on that plan. Um, also, Europol hunts gangster Hutch. This is security services are unable to locate Jerry Hutch, the Irish gangland figure known as the monk, whom they want to question about the shooting in the Regency Hotel that happened there, I think it was last January. Now, the Sunday Independent Minister's aids aids in new politics cost five million a year. Government ministers have been told they can hire additional advisers to help deal with the opposition, given the composition of the current doll the Sunday Independent can reveal. This is uh, another branch of new politics. It would seem that ministers, because they're uh, presumably in a minority government, they require more advice on how to deal with the Oireachtas. Now that, um, I suppose, if you were to put it bluntly, they don't have things completely their own way in terms of a majority. Sunday Business Post revealed the vulture funds that paid just €250 in tax. Global funds make tens of millions from Irish property deals. Loophole allows investors to slash corporation tax bills. This is a story that has been coming to the fore in the last few weeks through various different newspapers and various different stories. Basically, vulture funds are managing to come in, swoop for their assets and minimise their tax bill to next to nothing on the basis of claiming some form of charitable trust and it is certainly something I think that's going to keep running because in the current environment there's an awful lot of people that are very perturbed about that. The Irish Mail on Sunday also goes with the Munich story. Munich gunmen lured teenagers using social media. Facebook massacre. This bullied loner tempted youngsters with free burgers and that seems to be the emerging aspect to that story that uh, a lot of teenagers were lured to... Where this man wanted to commit his outrage by McDonald's by uh, an offer of free food through a hacked Facebook account. Now, to discuss some of the stories, we're joined by Pat Rabbit, former Labour Party leader, Ono Brin, Sinn Fein spokesperson on housing, planning, and local government, and TD from Midwest, and chair of the communications clinic, Terry Prone. <coughs> Terry, uh, another week, another outrage. We're just one week on from Nice, and another of, and all, in between, we also had a violent attack on a train in Germany, and now Munich. What's interesting about uh, both Nice and this one is that they wouldn't have been getting the kind of coverage that they got and are still getting today if they weren't, if it hadn't happened into the context of terrorism. Because what we're seeing is uh, their commonality is that you have quiet, disengaged and probably mentally ill young men who have decided to create retrospective fame for or posthumous fame for themselves by committing the kind of atrocity that has happened before since the 50s but usually in America because of gun availability you have had people who've lost the run of themselves and shot down um, as many as 20 uh, people at a time but there's an acute sensitivity to it because at this stage 
ISIS claim anything that's going and we assume that it's going to be terrorism and then we realise that it's the most difficult thing of all because terrorism with a motive is understandable. The irrationality of this is what terrifies most people. Absolutely. And I mean, as as you say, this is a (coughs) phenomenon we're used to, but it's nearly as if that which had been confined to the US um, up until now has been given life as is copycat or whatever that kind of context now in Europe A very good point, you have to ask first of all how these people got the guns that they had um, and secondly the interesting thing about this uh, uh, one in today's papers is that this was serious malice aforethought this guy used Facebook to attract young people on the promise that they were going to get free fast food so he concentrated the kids that he wanted to down in one area, which was really smart if seriously deranged. On your impression of the coverage in the story? Well, the first thing is is the single biggest uh, loss of life over the weekend, of course, with the two bomb attacks in Kabul. Over 60 people killed uh, in what does seem to be an Islamic state attack. And the bombing in Syria overnight as well. Absolutely. Um, And I was quite surprised at the order uh, of Ortiz news coverage last night in terms of covering this very, very tragic story that we're discussing this morning before uh, the even bigger tragedy uh, uh, in Kabul. I suppose the big concern here is the more you read about this uh, incredibly tragic event in Munich, what you're seeing is uh, a young individual who very very clearly has mental health issues uh, who went out and committed this dastardly act. It doesn't appear to be connected to any uh, political organisation, any political ideology. And yet we're now living in a climate that because of the series of these attacks... There is a growing sense in which every time something appalling like this happens, it is connected to uh, a, a community or a religion or a particular worldview. And that then does lead to, on the other end, the rise of Islamophobia uh, and prejudice against uh, communities. I mean, somebody said to me yesterday in terms of the, the Nice attacks, you know, the very significant number of the victims in that attack who were uh, of Muslim faith. Uh, so... I am concerned about some of the coverage. I think the coverage in the papers this morning is much more balanced and it does seem to describe it for what it is. But still, for the the families of the nine young people uh, and adults tragically shot dead, this is a very, very uh, sad story. Pat? I I agree with that. I mean, it's such an horrific tragedy that I suppose we have to discuss it. But quite frankly, I don't know what one can add to that. I mean, uh, you know, a, a teenager, loner... Obviously, mentally, uh, mentally ill, uh, you know, engages in this kind of copycat. But there is, there is the issue. There is the issue that this will feed into what is, in some parts of mainland Europe, generally a growing uh, intolerance, uh, even though it has nothing to do with it. Yeah, there's definitely that danger. I'm not so sure that that will be the response of the German uh, authorities in in this particular case. Not the authorities, but... After the horror of it abates. And, you you know, we are in in circumstances where uh, the the, uh, ISIS uh, network is willing to claim anything that seems to draw attention uh, to their cause. But, you know, I mean, if you look more widely, if you look at the United States now, you have the real prospect of oppressed black people deciding that if the authorities don't do anything to rein in the police, that they will take the law into their own hands in extremist circumstances in isolated cases. 
And, uh, you know, that, that is a nightmare scenario. And uh, at least in Germany, you can have a rational discussion about gun control and address the gun control issue, whereas it would appear that it's just out of bounds in the United States. The, the coverage issue is really important because inevitably, I didn't see uh, last night's RTE bulletin, but inevitably um, any news editor picks the place that's uh, closest and most easily identified Local with. Local is better. Local is more identifiable. Exactly. Yeah. But there's a number of issues here that, that I'm bothered about because I can see no solution to them. Number one is the Anders Breivik uh, and this guy kind of motivation, which is uh, in large measure an issue of mental health. But nonetheless, what they sought to achieve, what this young man sought to achieve, is delivered in spades by media. Because media never says uh, the reward for this was media. Media is just interested in the story. And that is what creates copycats. And it's a real and, I suspect, an insoluble problem. That's what I'm saying. What's the way around it? I can't think. Well, I suppose one of the, the difficulties for us having a discussion here is, and again, you're talking about what does appear to be an isolated uh, young man uh, with mental health difficulties, uh, what support services, what interventions. Now, one would have imagined, given the, the, the superior quality of social services and mental health services in a country like Germany, a lot more of those things would be in yeah, place. But, but there are always where, people are always going to slip where, through. Where, yeah. But also, we're not in a position to comment on those because we wouldn't know the specific circumstances. Uh, I suppose really all we can do, and Pat is right, you always need to be careful when you're having this discussion that we are today talking about uh, the tragic death of these nine uh, people. Uh, but also, I suppose, if, if the Kabul bombing hadn't have been Kabul, if it had been somewhere further away from Europe, but for example, in the United States, it would have been the top item in the news simply because the scale of the tragedy was so much better, so much greater, should I say. But I that so, go back to people, like for example, people here, even though if geographically I, the United States is further away, people here relate to the states in, far easier. In, in an increasingly globalised world where what happens in, in the Middle East uh, has a direct impact on the well-being and the security of people in this part of the world, that shouldn't be the case. The problem and is we should, that there's we should, never a should in media. There's but, never uh, a should. The, the reality Sorry. But there should be. Of course there should be, but there isn't a should in media. The, the fact is that any news editor looks at something happening in Africa, the Middle <coughs> East, and if there's a story happening in Texas or in this case in Germany involving violence, that is what the news editor is going to pick. Not because he or she is malign and vicious, but because he or she knows that they will get more readers, more people to pay attention to it. I don't think they're the two options. I also think it's because there is an inbuilt prejudice to how we prioritise new stories. Uh, what, what happens in the Middle East will have a huge impact in Europe. There's just no doubt about that. And therefore, if part of the function of reporting news isn't just to tell you something that happened, but something that happened that can and will probably have an impact uh, on ourselves, then I do think people need to think more carefully about how they prioritise those new stories. Having said all of that, I mean... Nobody can take away from the enormous tragedy of what took place in Munich. It is frightening to think. And again, I suppose the, the, the most important thing we can all do is express our, our deepest sympathies for their families, for that community, uh, and to stand in solidarity okay. with them and the people of Kabul. OK, now, as we said, this is nothing to do with any political violence, some of which we've seen lately. But, however, there is a growing insecurity in relation to how people are feeling about all of this. And, Pat... Frances Fitzgerald's moved there, I think it was last week, <coughs> the suggestion that she's willing to um, 
countenance deportations without there being a sort of a criminal standard of proof against individuals. That met with some opposition. Your old party, Labour Party, are kind of lukewarm on the issue. Um, how do you, what do you think about it? I, I, I thought it was a statement produced precisely for the insecurity circumstances that you describe that's generally in the ether. I, I'm not sure that anything has changed one whit uh, tomorrow, Monday, from what was the position. Well, there was a few weeks ago. Monday. There was a few weeks ago. There was a man who was living here sixteen years, and he was deported to Jordan, despite the fact that he may well face torture there. And uh, it's not exactly clear how strong was the um, the evidence against him in that regard. I, I, I mean, firstly, the the right to deport uh, has to be in the immigration law uh, of any member state. And if the Minister for Justice is seized of information that somebody is an imminent threat in the Irish context, then it seems to me that uh, deportation is warranted and justified. The, the, the test, of course, is, is the issue here, whether there is a standard uh, applied yeah. that most reasonable people would say, well, in the circumstances, that's fair. Now, in the case of the 16-year-old you mentioned, uh, I don't know the inside uh, mm. uh, machinations that were brought to bear on that decision. Generally speaking, uh, there isn't the kind of threat in Dublin or in Ireland that, for example, might be the case in London or in Britain. Uh, but that is not to say that there isn't a cause for concern uh, in respect of a very small number of people who probably find greater freedom to move, plan, plot in Dublin than they would find in London. And the authorities here uh, have to be, we hope, on top of that. OK, Owen, Amnesty International have serious concerns about it and Sinn Féin have raised concerns about it as well. Yeah, and I'm not so sure it's a serious, credible proposition at all. I think it's one of those uh, uh, statements that's designed to grab a headline. First of all, if somebody is involved in criminal activity in this state, they should be arrested, they should be tried, and they should be convicted according to the law. Uh, that's that's the first unequivocal thing to say, whether it's somebody involved uh, in uh, Islamic extremism or any other kind of crime. But you need to be very careful because if you give uh, uh, powers to ministers to allow deportations with lower standards of evidence that would be required in court then they can be abused and somebody could end up being deported purely because they hold political opinions with which all four of us in this or room perceived or let me make the point you could end up deporting somebody who the four of us in this room would think their political opinions are deeply objectionable but who do not constitute a threat to anyone and as a result of their deportation for example somebody that might uh, subscribe to the views of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, one of the largest opposition political parties in Egypt they may constitute no threat uh, they could end up being deported to Egypt and could be arrested and tortured uh, and face summary execution by the LCC regime. So you need to be very, very careful here. But also, is anybody seriously saying that there is a threat to the security of this state? I actually think, uh, and I will give credit to previous Irish governments uh, on this, even where I was critical of them in other areas, we have a very strong reputation on the international stage uh, for being a, a state and a government promotes dialogue, conflict resolution, 
uh, our interventions by and large in foreign conflicts around peacekeeping. And I actually think one of the best ways for us to ensure the safety uh, of citizens in this state is to maintain that position, to make us very different from some of the more belligerent states uh, 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 elsewhere in Europe. That doesn't mean you should be soft in any way or turn a blind eye to anybody who's a potential threat or involved in crime. But if you're involved in crime, you should be arrested, you should be tried, uh, and you should be convicted under the laws of this state as, as anybody else. So you're saying, the, you're saying the same standard <coughs> should apply in scenarios that we have seen growing with those who affiliate themselves with ISIL, as would have ad- apply to, to use a phrase, now, ordinary, decent, criminal, or whatever. A, a person I'm saying if somebody's involved in criminal uh, activity, uh, they should be treated accordingly. Uh, but we've, again, we need to be very, very careful because what we see in other jurisdictions is that line being blurred between somebody holding objectionable opinions, uh, opinions that I wouldn't oh, support. It's far more than opinions now they're no, talking no, but, about. No, no, but what I'm saying is somebody holding objectionable opinion, opinions and somebody involved in or potentially involved in crime, and whether involved in crime, use the law against them uh, and use the law against them in the same as you would with anybody else. Terry? I think that what Frances Fitzgerald was doing here, she actually says nothing <coughs> very new. But what she's doing is reassuring people, saying we're on it, we're across it, we will not do this, we will not. We have uh, systems. Um, I think the issue of finding somebody with uh, views with which you don't approve, somebody who has been, uh, the phrase now is radicalised, um, casts a, a problem for any democratic society because if you assume that they're going to associate with others of like mind, if you believe that there is a possibility that they will be involved in terrorism uh, here or abroad, then most establishment political parties, I suspect, would want the police force, the security force, to move in before crime has been committed. And that's a real moral issue. Exactly. Because uh, the prevention of crime can move, the intent to prevent crime can move dangerously close to controlling the rights of the citizens. So it's a very delicate and constantly evolving balance. And there's one other issue, Pat, and that is that if it's deemed that these people should be deported, it's deported to where? Because some of the states to which they may be reported have appalling records in terms of torture and human rights abuses. But that makes the dilemma, Michael, all the more difficult. Uh, I mean, there's no uh, simple solution to that. But look at it the other way. Supposing the Minister for Justice here was in possession of information that an atrocity was likely to be committed. We don't know where exactly or when exactly. And, you know, that citizens, uh, Irish and others, uh, are are murdered in in such an incident. Uh, You know, the atmosphere here afterwards would be, what about her? Why didn't she act? Why didn't she know? Uh, and so on. So, I mean, it is an appallingly difficult uh, decision. And, uh, you know, I I would draw a distinction between uh, people here who hold views that we would find uh, obnoxious uh, and the threat to commit crime here. You know, they, they are two different issues. One is for monitoring and surveillance, and the other is for action to be taken to prevent. But nobody, yeah, is, no, <clears throat> nobody is suggesting that the minister in that set of circumstances shouldn't intervene. I mean, one of the real tragedies about the attacks in Belgium was that the Turkish authorities on a number of occasions in advance of uh, those very tragic attacks had given information to the Belgian authorities 
urging them to take action against the individuals who were involved in and eventually carried that out. So there is plenty of scope within the law for the minister and the police force to do exactly what Pat and Terry are saying without undermining basic (coughs) civil liberties that are, are important for all of us. We're reviewing the morning newspapers with Pat Rabbit, Ono Bryn and Terry Prone. Now, uh, an awful lot of coverage in the papers this morning on the Housing and Homeless Plan, which was published during the week by uh, Housing Minister Simon Coveney. And in fact, two thirds of our panel have written columns on uh, housing this morning. Pat, just to turn to you first. Um, you're the first person I've seen so far this week who's brought up the subject of rezoning land and going back to that Hoary Chestnut, the Kenny report. Yet at the same time, the government you were part of uh, rode back on a similar type of measure brought in by the Green Party the previous time I think it was to tax rezone land at 80 or 90% and isn't that the key of a lot of the housing problems that over the years one government steps in another steps out and we've been back and forth as well as all the vested interests involved Well uh, when I was there the problem was there was no money and there was no builders and there was no need for housing we had a housing overhang everywhere, including in Dublin. But the crisis uh, was foretold at the same time, back as far as 2012. Yeah. I mean, the the situation, I think, Michael, and this is the one addressed by Colin McCarthy in his piece, the situation is, uh, how can builders have claimed, not just the period that you ask me about, but right up to the present, how can they claim that it's not viable to build houses, that it's not profitable And that's, of course, what buried the uh, Alan Kelly plan. The builders didn't produce the houses, uh, even where the money was made available and uh, so on. And in Colin McCarthy, I mean, I referred to the Kenny report and so on. Just just to tell listeners, the Kenny report, 1974, Judge Kenny came up with a report that in order to assist housing and to solve some of the housing problem, then rezoned land should be priced at the agricultural price plus 25% what happens as things are the market it's a multiple of that and that's key to some of a lot of the problems Colin McCarthy then goes further than that he he challenges the basis of zoning policy and he says that a contribution uh, not just to the cost of building housing units but to the dislocation of people outside of the Dublin conurbation uh, is policy pursued in respect of zoning Um, And in other words, he's saying there is plenty of land in Dublin. There should be a broad plan in terms of where you may build, where you must put amenities and community facilities and where you must protect heritage and uh, uh, so on and so forth. That the postage stamp uh, system that we have followed uh, is adding to... What do you mean by the postage stamp system? uh, You you take uh, it uh, during the... um, really controversial days of planning in Dublin and the attitude of the old Dublin County Council and the attitude of a lot of us who were members of it was that where a a landowner or a developer came in with a huge belt of land that you gave him permission on a small corner of it and you came out and thumped your chest for the Michael Cliffords of the day and said, well, at least we contained him. But in fact, uh, the Colin McCarthy economic argument is that that postage stamp approach has only contributed to driving up the price and that the key element in the viability question is the cost of land. 
and it is that issue of costs that really is is at the heart here and we have a problem Owen well, first of all, the, the underlying causes of our housing and homelessness crisis are, are much deeper uh, and go back further than as uh, Pat outlined. Uh, and I suppose, uh, from my point of view, the central problem uh, has been the failure of the state over a, a number of decades to provide an adequate supply of social housing. The NESC back in, in 2005 said we needed a social housing stock of, of a minimum by 2014 of 200,000 units. Uh, we've got about 139,000 units. And of course, uh, we probably have a greater level of need. When Pat uh, took office or when Fianna Fáil left the economy in, in such a heap back in 2011, housing waiting lists were longer than they'd ever been. The number of people dependent on state subsidies in the private rental sector because they couldn't afford their rent was higher than they'd ever been. And the number of people who were homeless had been higher than any other point. So notwithstanding the fact that Pat is right, there was a large overhang of private sector stock. It wasn't accessible to the state. Much of it was in the wrong place. Uh, and the state wasn't providing units. Pat is also wrong. Uh, there were builders, in fact, large numbers of unemployed builders uh, uh, after the crash. And if you look at the history of social housing uh, in the 1950s and the 1970s, in fact, when the economy is in a poor state, that's the best time there was, to there provide. Was more so than ever before, there was no money there. But there was, you see, and this is the great myth. Uh, now, there wasn't directly funded exchequer money. There's no doubt about that. But there were a number well, of there, sources. There, they were, wasn't bank credit either there, on, there was which a, is the critical point a, for the unemployed a, builders. There was a number of sources of funding uh, and people were shouting about it in local authorities in the Housing Finance Agency in the Lo- Irish League of Credit Unions over the last five years to start a programme back in 2011, 12 and 13 uh, of increasing uh, the local authority and approved housing body stock. The great failure of Alan Kelly's strategy uh, isn't to do with the cost of land although Hold that's on, a problem. Hold on, sorry, but they were shouting about that but put that in the context <coughs> of the times apart from there being no money there was the, money. There was well, money. Well, there was, the, there was well, okay, absolutely let me put it money this way, The perception that there was no money. There was also the biggest issue that was all over the time, all over the place time, was ghost estates. Admittedly absolutely. in the <coughs> wrong place. But the notion that we'd have absolutely. had a major housing programme while we had tens of thousands of empty units around the country, that That's, was a political but issue too. It, it was, but it also misunderstands the point. Uh, if you want to increase the stock uh, of social housing owned by local authorities and approved housing bodies, uh, you do two things. You acquire units that have already been built, uh, and we know from both the recent census figures and the, the 2011 uh, that uh, those uh, units are in very large numbers. And where they are needed, you build new units. Of course, you don't build houses in areas where there are available, uh, and in many cases, much cheaper units. But here's the difficulty, and this is why it isn't just about the situation of 2011. For 20 to 25 years... The thinking in the Department of Environment, and no matter what minister got in there, they were captured by this thinking, did not want the state to have direct responsibility for acquiring, building and owning social housing stock over the long term. I mean, there's a very troubling story in the Sunday Business Post today, which is presented as some great development whereby uh, private investors are putting together a fund to acquire the Part 5 obligations in private housing development. So I'm a builder, I want to build 100 houses, 10 of those would be social. Another investor comes in and buys that obligation of me, builds those units, but instead of then transferring them to the local authority, as under Part 5 legislation, leases them to the state for a long period of time with limited security of tenure for the tenant, with no ability to build sustainable, coherent communities and much more expensive to the state. So we have been witnessing the slow and steady transfer of responsibility for the provision of social housing from the public sector to the private sector, uh, uh, primarily driven, in my view, by the department, but with the complicity of politicians. And the problem with the Coveney plan 
and it is undoubtedly better uh, than what Alan Kelly put there before but it is operating within that same failed okay. policy consensus and that's why I think ultimately it's doomed to fail. Okay, Terry, there's another issue there and Colin McCarthy touches on this as well. This is primarily a Dublin <coughs> problem, albeit to a certain mm-hmm. extent some of the other cities, but there's large parts of the country where this, this housing crisis, as we describe it, is not there because houses are affordable for people on average wages. But unfortunately... Should there have been a regional aspect to this whole plan? Well, it's interesting. The Sunday Business Post have a thing where they uh, take a morons series of questions and answer them. And one of the morons questions is, we have um, ghost estates all around the country. Why are we not using them? And the answer is surprisingly brief and more or less to the effect that, well, would you want to to go (coughs) and live in a place that was built four years ago and has had no maintenance ever since? But... The the lack of attention to that, the lack of attention to the continuing uh, commuter uh, problem into Dublin, uh, it, it was surprising in the analysis. But I'm not sure that that is as big an immediate problem as the one in Dublin. Oh, the yeah, one I in think Dublin is the yeah, overwhelming absolutely. one. Secondly, I'm not sure that it's fair, as Owen has done, to characterise all uh, ministers f- for the environment over the last 30 years as effectively and unilaterally wanting to wind down the provision of social housing by the state. I believe, having been around for some of the thinking, that there was, among some of the more enlightened ministers for the environment, a sense that... Um, the, the past of this had been the creation of ghettos, of no-go areas. I think of, that's the experience you know, in some cases, but there's a lot of cases where it wasn't necessarily... The, the yeah, but the, <coughs> the attempt was to, to make it more open to everybody. Now, clearly, if you have a Fianna Fáil minister, the Fianna Fáil minister is usually going to say, and the private sector will come in and it'll all be grand. Pat, there's one other issue, and, and just in, in the housing in general, and Colin McCarthy touches on this as well, and, and it is the idea that bringing the, the objective should be to bring down the cost of houses mm. rather than facilitating that people are able to buy them. But he makes the point that if you were to do that, you'd discommode everybody, you'd discommode a number of people, including the banks, including people who already have homes because their prices, their homes in general, are going to come down. And he even suggests that the future um, financial health of the banks requires a dysfunctional market. That, 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 that's how intractable well, the problem you see, is. You see, that's part of the problem, isn't it? I mean, I deal with that in my own piece in the... Sunday Business Post that if uh, if uh, bankers and land hoarders align their interests, then it will pose a serious challenge to the new plan. I mean, uh, they, they, and people who own their own homes as well. I mean, they, 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 they basically people's assets as they might have it are not going to increase if the general price comes down. As I think it would be agreed in the public interest, it should in order that people can get into homes. Well, I think like, like a lot of things in public policy, it's a matter of balance, and the balance is seriously out of kilter at the moment. And a, a, a central issue here is the hoarding of land, and what can reasonably be done. What measures are built in? Uh, to address that without plunging the banks back into bankruptcy. And that's what's wrong with uh, Owen's point about uh, unemployed builders. We certainly had unemployed building workers, uh, but we didn't have builders left standing. And those who were left standing 
uh, were confronted by banks who were concerned about correcting their internal ratios. They were not concerned about expanding credit to the building industry. And they had a cast iron gar- uh, excuse in terms of flicking through their books and say, oh, well, we had a bad experience with you chaps five years ago or four years ago, whatever it is. And the result is uh, the credit wasn't there. But it is a fact uh, that for 20 odd years now that governments have transferred uh, social need into the private sector uh, and therefore the public housing stock has been run down and that is certainly an issue and that unless we can address that now you know I, I don't know where you start. I mean, the the performance of the local authorities in this area has been lamentable. But they've and also I heard, been depleted uh, of resources. Going round and oh. round in an interview uh, uh, this this week, uh, explaining uh, you know, well, we're going to provide forty seven. Yeah, I heard that. Units. But to be fair to them, they they have been stripped to the bone of resources in in building regulation, <coughs> yes. in building administration, the whole thing. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Everybody has been stripped to the bone, uh, unless you believe there was no need to take action to correct the uh, fiscal imbalance. I think, uh, Pat, though, y- even yeah. before the fiscal imbalance mm. and that whole episode, there was a reduction in funds going to the local authorities for social housing there building. Was. And I think this goes back to your man Fukuyama's thing that says that uh, there was a, a general <coughs> vague belief that we were coming to an end of the need for social housing, that we were all rising in affluence and it would all be grand and therefore there wasn't the same urge to put money. I think it's wrong to attack the local authorities for failure to deliver on stuff that they weren't given the money for. Well, I, I, that, that is it's absolutely fair, Terry, that uh, they obviously had to endure a certain amount of retrenchment like all the public service. But even where they were given money, sanctioned for money to provide local authority houses, they didn't do it. And also, I suppose, well, Pat, 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 Part 5 wasn't ring fenced as was initially... Well, also, Pat, Pat, Pat is wrong uh, and very clearly wrong in terms of, of the allocation of money because what happens when the Department of Environment, and Alec Kelly was a particularly poor uh, uh, proponent of this, they would announce that they were giving local authorities a set amount of money. But before local authorities could actually draw down that money, they would have to go through an 18-month approval procurement and tendering process as laid down by the Department of Public Expenditure Reform and the Department of Environment. The crucial issue, however, is this. Currently, there are about 100,000 families living in private accommodation subsidised by the state. Uh, Those people should not be living in that sector of our housing system. As a result of those people living there, that has pushed up the price of rents and it has pushed up the price of houses for first-time buyers. And that's not the fault of uh, the lower-income families living in subsidised private rental. It's a responsibility uh, of the state. What should be the core objective in terms of private housing? It has to be bringing the cost uh, of purchasing a home down, Mm. irrespective of how that discommodes people in terms of their asset value. Why? Because otherwise you're going to have uh, a significant increase in housing need. But one of the ways of doing that is by moving people out steadily over a period of time as you increase the stock of social housing, moving those people out of the private housing element of our system, 
making those houses available. There's also the 189,000 houses in the private housing stock uh, that can be brought into stock. We have more than twice the level of vacant stock uh, as compared with most of our European neighbours and there are things we know work. But what we also need to do is this. We still don't know the actual all-in cost of building and providing yeah. houses. Land isn't just the only issue. No, but High compliance costs, cost of finance. Uh, uh, cost and, of regulation. And, and one of the key things is we need the housing agency on an annual basis to do an audit and make really okay. evidence-based or recommendations to government to bring the cost of buying a house down. Okay, there's one, one other issue, and that is the, the selling off of social housing stock to tenants at a discount. Now, the government <coughs> have a new scheme in place for that. I mean, is it correct that it's being sold off at a discount, for instance? Well, in fact, uh, I was one of a number of people in the Dáil Housing and Homelessness Committee that called for a, a, a suspension of, of well, that there's scheme. But there's plus in terms of selling let it me, off too. You settle me, communities, me, you put anchors down me, there. Let me make the point. We call for spen- suspension of that scheme because of the depth of the housing crisis. I'm actually in favour of tenant purchase as a principle. If you go into the vast majority of council estates, which aren't ghettos, which are really, really good places to live, there's a good income mix because working families bought their homes. There are some people renting uh, and there, there are other folks there, unfortunately, not in work. Uh, and that creates a level of income mix and community cohesion, which is a good thing. But you cannot allow your housing stock to fall below a certain threshold. We are way below that. So the priority has to be bring the stock up back to the level of need and then you could have a reasonable tenant purchase scheme. I think it's a question... So so we need need to be very careful about how we do this. Okay, Pat. I think it's a question of timing. Uh, You know, the, the actual concept of a tenant purchase scheme is a good one because I have represented communities all my life uh, where it was a significant factor contributing to stability and was much better than an earlier scheme that existed uh, to enable people uh, to support them to buy into the low-cost private sector. And therefore, everybody who had a bit of get-up-and-go in those communities got up and left. Uh, it's, a, it's a question of timing, however, and whether this is the, uh, the opportune time you know, I think is is questionable. I think it's inevitable, Michael. I don't think you could have a tenant purchase scheme that would work without a discount being built in. You would Depends have to the size of the discount to credit to uh, yes. It, it, you know, it, and that, one of the problems of the current scheme, unlike older schemes, whereby your discount accrued over the length of time you lived there, and obviously the length of time you paid rent and improved the property, you can now avail of up to a sixty percent discount, having been in a council house for two years. So the scale of the discount and the period of time you can be living in the house okay. to get that discount is far. far far from uh, satisfactory in the current scheme. Now, still with us is Pat Rabbit, Ono Brin and Terry Prone. Terry, uh, the doll ended this term. There isn't that much about it in the papers apart from some uh, ruminations from the McGill Summer School <laughs> during the week. But um, what was your summation of uh, how we've begun this first term of so-called, to use that dreaded phrase that has replaced fiscal space, new politics? Well, first of all, I have never accepted that it's new politics. Mm. It is old politics. Secondly, it has proven the... I, I've always been very afraid of very big majorities or even governments made up of large chunks of the members of the Aaron. I prefer my governments weak. Um, I prefer them varied. And uh, the what we saw in the first quarter of this government in action was a kind of... It was like a new baby arriving in a house. Uh, total chaos. Everybody uh, hating everybody else but pretending not to hate everybody else and eventually working down to some kind of modus vivendi and it hasn't been as bad as might have been expected. 
Oh, and you, you, you first term in the Dáil. I, I believe it's your first visit to the McGill Summer School too. You're, you're joining the establishment, are you? Yeah, apparently so. Um, <laughs> it's been a strange atmosphere, I have to say, since the election. But w- what's clear is we do have a Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael coalition in everything but name. Fine Gael cannot move on any major initiative or indeed any small appointment to an expert uh, commission on the future water charges without Fianna Fáil's consent. You see Michael McGrath throwing shapes uh, around reducing tax credits to high earners uh, and essentially saying that Michael Noonan won't be able to proceed with that in the budget. The big test of this, of course, is going to be the budget uh, and whatever about uh, the settling period of, of this term. Uh, it's really going to now focus the minds as to whether or not this effective Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael coalition can agree a budget and whether that budget will be, as Fianna Fáil keep promising, it will be fair on the basis of what Michael McGrath has been saying in the papers this week, it will be fair for the higher earners. The other thing is, is in fairness, Simon Coveney's action plan on housing is also another test of whether or not this government can deliver. He did get his plan out on time. Uh, in fact, he got it out uh, almost 26 days early. Uh, but the ability to deliver will be dependent on the investment that supports it, a lot of which is unclear at this stage. So I think really we're going to see over the next, uh, uh, from the October period, uh, whether, not if this government is a new politics, because Terry's right, there is no new politics. This is politics as, as usual in a slightly different political circumstance. Uh, but whether we're going to see a continuation of the same, in my view, failed policies of the previous government or some real change. And, and on the basis of what I've seen so far, I'm not optimistic. OK, Pat, you, you, you're you out of the bear pit now, so you, you, you perhaps have a, a more nuanced uh, vantage from which to view <coughs> the goings-on. But Pat Rabbit and nuanced, do those words go <laughs> together? No, Pat, um, Leo Varadkar made some comments up McGill as well this week about index linking social welfare, which according to the Sunday Times this morning has discommoded some of his uh, cabinet colleagues. But are we witnessing a shift to the left in general in Irish politics as a result of the current Dáil configuration? Well, the first thing I'd say is that uh, nothing uh, in Leinster House competes with... uh, Marion McKeown's report in the Sunday Business Post from Cleveland. It really has to be read to be believed. As uh, in the goings-on over there? Well, I mean, it is just extraordinary. I mean, she says it amounts to the destruction of the Republican Party. Uh, uh, she d- deals in some length with the kind of things, the demands that Hillary Clinton be hanged in the mall in Washington and another yeah. that she be hanged from a tree. Yeah, we're, we're, we're and so showing a Murray about that soon, yeah. But it, it, it's, it's just extraordinary it stuff. And there's nothing that can happen at the McGill Summer School uh, <laughs> that uh, that competes with that. I don't think that. you can compare them, no. no. I, I would have thought that Leo, uh, that Leo was just labouring under a, a week where the other pretender to the throne uh, was uh, the main news headlines. So uh, it's all just down to vying for position. Ah, no, I wouldn't say it's all down to that, but I mean, you can't take that out of the situation where you have two young bulls uh, in the field uh, in anticipation that uh, sooner or later a vacancy will occur. Okay, Pat, one other story just to touch on that I find disturbing that's the, the splash in the business post. The vulture funds that pay just €250 Euro in tax, and that, this is the third or fourth <coughs> of these cases we've seen in recent weeks. This really seems to be the worst aspect of basically coming in and buying stuff cheap that no one else can afford and getting out and not paying a bob in tax. Well, in terms of domestic politics, it's the most serious thing in the newspapers today uh, and on the face of it, outrageous. The editor of the Sunday Business Post, Ian Kyo, tries to explain to the rest of us 
the different schemes that are there uh, that are legit. uh, uh, legitimate and that constitute tax avoidance rather than tax evasion. Uh, but uh, in in uh, the cases highlighted there, I don't know whether it is that it's a junction of events at this time that uh, vulture capital funds can, by setting up a special purpose vehicle in this uh, jurisdiction, uh, can avail of uh, a, cor- a cornerstone section of the Act that effectively uh, uh, lets them get out without paying any tax. Uh, I mean... It's unfortunate, uh, as happened in the case of the cock-up relating to economic growth. If we provide uh, ammunition internationally uh, to uh, denigrate the 12.5% corporation tax rate, the issue is not the 12.5% corporation tax rate, which we ought to defend as a peripheral and isolated small open economy. It is that there are companies uh, contriving to use the system to evade tax. It's it's They can only do that because the system allows them to do it. And before the show, I was actually looking at uh, uh, PwC's explanation of these uh, Section 110 special purpose vehicles, which is the vehicles that are used in the, the various schemes that ENQ outlines. The state allows these companies to do this. We have created... A, a legal mechanism for very profitable companies to come to this country, set up a special purpose vehicle and to treat their tax affairs as if we were an offshore tax haven, which of course in this instance we are. What's the cost of that? The cost is uh, millions if not uh, tens of millions of euros that could be invested in housing or health or education or getting children out of emergency accommodation. So while absolutely we should be focusing on the uh, the, the practices of the investors, in fairness to Stephen Donnelly when he challenged Richard Bruton on this in the in the floor of the doll, he was saying, what are you and your government doing uh, uh, as the people responsible for these schemes? And Richard Bruton was like, well, I'm not aware of any problem here. If you read what these things are designed for, they are designed to facilitate legal tax avoidance. It is wrong. It should stop. Uh, and those companies should be taxed. And the taxes that accrue, and I'm with Pat on this one, by the way, the taxes that accrue should be then invested in tackling the issues we've just spent the last 45 minutes talking about. OK, Terry, I mean, this is also covered. But, but before the... Terry comes in, uh, <laughs> forgive me, Terry. I mean, uh, I mean, are you correct uh, in, in that uh, basic assertion on that the purpose of them is to facilitate tax evasion in the sense that it is perfectly legitimate, it seems to me, uh, to, use the, uh, to use tax incentives to stimulate economic activity in, in certain circumstances. But look so, at, I look mean, at, I don't know if that's at, the basic look at, purpose. Look at the is list. It, it's well, abuse of the section. No, but look at the, uh, look at the list uh, of investment uh, types that can be used in these, and they are all financialized vehicles, CDOs and CDFs, which have no positive uh, benefit on the real economy. Mm. This is about facilitating money transferring through this member state uh, okay. to avoid tax. Nick, um, I would not wish to get in between a brief and possibly transient uh, accord between Pat and Owen. I therefore want to go back to your outrageous suggestion that politics in Ireland or government politics is moving to the left. Um, It is an outrageous suggestion because, first of all, it's based on Leo Varadkar doing something, which would be extraordinary. Um, Secondly, in relation to the specific thing that Leo did, he, he talked without having first dealt with his cabinet colleagues. There is a worthwhile 
tradition of doing this. Donna O'Malley, when he brought in uh, free education, not only hadn't talked to his cabinet colleagues, but he announced it before he had talked to the Secretary of the Department of Finance and Dr Whitaker had a seizure, it is reported. Um, the, the thing that seems to have been worryingly missed to me in this is that if you index link uh, social welfare benefits they can go down just as well as they can go up. And that's a real issue. There is, there is some evidence, however, that uh, public opinion is shifting to the left. Theresa Reedy in the McGill Summer School presented very, very good evidence-based research to show us on a range of issues, public services versus taxation, abortion, etc. There is a shift kind of to the centre-left, as she described it. Uh, so it's not just Leo Varadkar. There is something more significant oh, yeah, happening out there. I think, in fairness, I think the, the, the government, because they're hamstrung in so many ways, Fine Gael, anyway, I think there's no question that there is a certain shift and it's not just down to uh, Leo Varadkar. But that, unfortunately, as far as we can take it with the panel this morning, my thanks to Pat Rabbit, former Labour Party leader, Ona Brinch, Sinn Fein spokesperson in Housing, Planning and Local Government, and Terry Prone, Chair of the Communications Clinic.